Good morning. I'd like to invite you now to listen to the word and the wisdom of God, the word of God in scripture, the word of God among us, and the word of God within. This is from Matthew 16. Jesus is speaking to his first friends, but maybe take a moment to settle in to the reality that he could be speaking to us today. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So he asked them, but who do you say that I am? So now in this psalm reading, let the poetry of praise lead you into a responsiveness to the word and the wisdom you just heard from Jesus. Psalm 138. O you, Lord, I give my whole heart, a heart filled with praise, for I am grateful. And before the gods, my heart sings praise to you and you alone. I bow before you, looking to your your holy temple, and praise your name for your unfailing love and your truth. For you have placed your name and your word over all things and all times. On the day I needed you, I called, and you responded and infused my soul with strength. May all the kings of the earth praise you, O eternal one, because they have heard the words you have spoken. They will marvel at the eternal's ways, and they will sing, for great is the glory of the eternal one. Although he is greatest of all, he is attentive to the needy and keeps his distance from the proud and pompous. Whenever I walk into trouble, you are there to bring me out. 
You hold out your hand to protect me against the wrath of my enemies and hold me safely in your right hand. The Eternal One will finish what he has started in me. Your faithful love, O Eternal One, lasts forever. Do not give up on what your hands have made. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Pat. Good afternoon. So good to see you all here. Um, Today we're going to be looking at the gospel passage in Matthew 16. Um, And it's one that's just filled with metaphor. All these little references Jesus is pointing us to are whole threads that go throughout Scripture. And he... He brings us to this central question, which in, in so many ways is the question. Who do you say that I am? That right at the heart of what we are here to do is to, to come to grips with this question, to understand the answer, and, and to let this answer then shape and inform our whole life. We don't come to church to like check the religious box, right? This is sinking in to the point that it touches every aspect of our lives, our relationships, our interactions, our vocation, our calling. And I love how we see that happening in Peter. Simon, I should say, who's on the verge of being given a new name, a new calling, a new vocation. His life is being shaped by this moment. And um, one of the sweet moments where he gets it right. This passage is followed by one of his great blunders. And, and I love that too, that um, we're invited into that reminder that we are all in a process. That God is shaping us, drawing us into something deeper, and that we all have further to go. I think about this idea, this question, who do you say that I am? And the way that it impacts more than probably I initially comprehend I've told this story about how I came to somebody one time when I was in college and was sharing my faith, and um, we had it down to four laws, right? Has anybody used this? Like, boom, 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 like, here's a prayer. Are you in or are you out? Um, and, and I've told you, I've seen God do incredible things through that little booklet, but in this one case, this woman that I was sharing with said, do you have any idea what you're asking of me? And I remember thinking, like, no, 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 it's just like a simple little thing, right? And she was like, no way, this touches on everything, her family, her calling, all of these things. And I remember feeling so challenged in a really good way to go, even though we can sort of hold it out here with a sense of simplicity, the gravity of this question will shape us. It changes our course. And Jesus is choosing this moment specifically. There's often in Scripture little details that we miss because we just don't quite understand the context. For instance, the fact that he waits till they enter into this region of Caesarea Philippi. And for us, we see that and just probably hear a, a phrase or a name that we don't quite comprehend, right? Caesarea, what's the significance there? Well, can anybody guess? Caesar that about 120 miles away from Jerusalem, right on the border of Israel, 
is a little town named after the emperor of Rome, the Caesar, followed by the word Philip or Philippi, one of Herod the Great's sons, who was kind of in pseudo kingship of this little territory there. And so in many ways you have this like combination of these two powers that existed at the time. One that was clearly subordinate and yet wanted to kind of in its own way make diplomatic ties or appeasements. It was, it was trying to sort of hold on to what it had in the midst of what was really an oppressive time. That this was the climate and the context in which Jesus entered and began talking about his own kingdom. Not of this world, but a kingdom of heaven coming to earth. And when Jesus asks this question of his disciples, who do people say that I am? They had recognized there was an authority on him, an authority like one of the prophets. In fact, to to use that, evoke that word, Elijah, right? This is probably the, the strongest of the prophetic voices in the Old Testament. Although some would compare him to Jeremiah, who personally is my favorite. Jeremiah was a little bit more of an emotional prophet. He struggled with his calling as he kind of came into it. He was convinced he was too young. He wasn't sure that he was worthy. And yet God used Jeremiah to weave such beautiful prophetic hope for Israel. Or John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, as it turns out, who had become sort of a modern-day Elijah. And this is what they would do. They would kind of go, oh, this person is not just a prophet, but a prophet in the, the thread or in the school of Elijah or in the, in the school of John the Baptist. I love how Jesus personalizes this and going, who do you say that I am? And there, kind of at the border of Caesarea Philippi, Simon says, you're the Messiah. And Messiah just simply means the anointed one. In fact, when, when kings were anointed in Israel, they would be referred to as a Messiah, maybe with like a lowercase m. Anointed, called. But a Messiah, the, the son of the living God, he's evoking a sort of divine lineage to this, which would have pointed the Hebrew people to not just prophecy, but a covenant, a promise that God had made to them, that he would send one to bring liberation, that rescue Israel, but also that there would be a king that would sit on the throne from the line of David, and that this king would reign forever. And there in this place of like the, the world's contests over, over power and control, Jesus brings an earth, a heavenly kingdom. And Peter sees it. He goes, you are the one. You are the anointed. You are David's heir. You are God's son. And this is his shining moment. Jesus is going to say, like, well done. Like, blessed are you, Peter. I used to have this um, professor who would say, bingo. <laughs> and um, it's all you wanted as a student in his class, right? Everybody kind of like was just striving for the bingo. And uh, <laughs> me and a friend would actually like keep score off to the side how everybody's doing, how many bingos you had. Um, but Peter gets this, like bingo, like right on, like he nailed it. And then he goes on to say, 
this is who you are. That Simon, you, you are this rock. And upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. And he must have been so proud. In fact, so proud that I think he's going to go on to blunder in his old overconfidence of this. Like, I got it right, and I'm probably right about the next thing. But, but it's all right. He has this sweet moment there. And, um, you know, when you look at this, it's a fascinating passage. If you look at it kind of in the original or in the Greek, there's even a little word play here. He, he says, you're Cephas, which would have been Greek for not just rock, but little rock. And then he goes, and upon this large rock, I'll build my church. And, and who knows what that means? You almost get this sense of like a cairn, like this little rock being placed on this big rock. And maybe Jesus is evoking in here other places of his teaching that, that it, to follow Jesus is like to build your house on this strong firm foundation, not on the shaking sand of culture, that it's got this truth that creates stability that's unshakable. Or maybe he's referencing himself as the cornerstone and, and Peter becoming like one of the corners in the this house that he's building, this structure, this church, or, or this ecclesia, right, would be the name in Greek. And people have wondered. I mean, we think of church and we're like, here we are. We're doing church. We're doing ecclesia. And I'm not quite sure that's what Jesus was referring to here. Although I think there's a beautiful thing about us gathering on Sunday mornings. But ecclesia in Greek would have been like this advisory board for the city. Within their culture, within their democracy, they would pull people in for influence that would speak into the laws of the people and the culture and they would shape it. What kind of a world do we want? Interesting that this is the term that Jesus uses. The ecclesia, come be part of my culture shaping world that is going to shape culture in line with heaven. To bring that here this world as it is in heaven. But the texture of this group of people following this king will bring literally heaven to earth. And when you follow back into Jesus' teaching as he's there on the mount and he's shaping their whole understanding, you see a kingdom so different than what we would naturally expect. A kingdom of humility. A kingdom where the least are the greatest a kingdom of surrender and obedience where even suffering is turned into something of eternal weight and glory. And this is what Jesus is inviting them into. I want you to be influencers. Now, that word has become sort of burdened now and bloated. But but you get the point, right? That you are there to shape every single one. But Peter, in particular, gets this unique calling that we're building this thing and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And this idea of the gates of hell, right? We go like, oh yeah, I get that. And then you're like, wait, what? <laughs> what is he talking about here? And again, if we're looking at this in Greek, you would see the gates of Hades, another Greek reference, a concept of the afterlife, 
a concept of a world not above but below. And how they saw this world, this sort of in-between, is like in-between these two gates, the gate of heaven, the gate of hell. And if you weave this back through the Old Testament, it, it probably is better understood as the gate of death. That death itself, we see that in Isaiah, says, In the prime of my life must I go through the gates of death and be robbed of the rest of my years. That you see throughout Scripture that that death is the enemy. Death is this looming threat. Death is this thing that creates in us a sense of fear and scarcity, anxiety, that makes us clutch to life, hold on to what we have instead of living in this spacious, generous place of peace and stability, that this gate of death will not prevail over the gate of life. And then Jesus pulls out another metaphor. It's just filled with them. He says, Peter, my little rock, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. Which immediately makes me think of like full access, right? I I remember when I worked... At Fullerton EV Free, like when I just started in ministry, they had this key that was called the Z key. And it got you into every single door in the church, right? If you had the Z key, you had the keys to the kingdom. And uh, just quick question, how many of you have a key to the church? Yeah, we're going to need those back. <laughs> um, over time, keys just sort of, right, they kind of multiply themselves. And But, but it, it's a great picture, right, this key. This access, that you're given this key and it's a a sign of trust, that you can come in, but it's more than just access. Jesus is going to follow this up with this idea of power and authority, that that authority is not just for opening doors that I might come in, it's for actually unlocking Loosening, unbinding. That they're going to build this ecclesia, this culture forming group that are going to bring the kingdom of heaven. And what they're going to do through that is set people free. And we see Peter handed the key and we're like, wow, lucky Peter. But but the truth is that they're all given this key. And just a few chapters later, Jesus is going to say that to all the disciples. And I really think, safe to say, to each one of us. But those that say, you're the Messiah. He's like, all right, here's your key. Matthew 18, 18 through 20 says, truly, I say to you. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And you see God in the midst of this active God, ultimately the key, but participating with us, indwelling us, existing in the chemistry between members of this ecclesia. When they go out to shape culture, they don't do it alone. They do it with God in their midst. Loosing heaven on earth. Binding death in Hades. 
And what is this describing? Well, I mean, I think if we take a look at Jesus' teaching and look through the lens often of Paul, Paul was really good at understanding this idea of freedom. That was the texture of the gospel, that it came to bring freedom that we're bound in chains of sin, bound in chains of self-obsession, bound in our own like need to control and cling and clutch. Each of us so desperately needs to be set free from the bondage of our own ego and pride and self-obsession. But when we are free, we are free to do what? To extend that freedom, that grace, that forgiveness to others. This grace that we receive that unlocks us, we then take and wield and unlock that in those around us. And forgiveness is a simple little thing in so many ways. And I've used this example before, but I'll always like picture Ted Lasso, like, when Rebecca comes in and reveals all the betrayal and all the things she's done all season long and she admits it all and confesses that and you're expecting this bomb to go off except Ted goes, I forgive you. And you're like, okay. <laughs> right? Simple. I forgive you. And yet internally, what that takes. I, I, there's a theologian I like. His name is Miroslav Volf. And uh, he's one who um, talks quite a bit on our calling of, of reconciliation. And um, I think he's at Yale. But anyway, but Miroslav Volf talks about a story from when he was a child. And I think he was just a baby when his brother, who was just a little bit older than him, was killed. And killed in a horrible accident. They, where they were, I forget where they lived, but it was, um, Eastern Europe. And, um, his brother would go sort of play with the soldiers on the base nearby. I mean, different time, right? And they had befriended this little boy and he like was riding with them in the cart. And at one point they were going through this archway and he slipped out. Like the cart hit a bump and he fell. And anyway, I won't go further with it, but you can imagine the tragedy of this. Moment, And Miroslav was asking his mom, how did you handle that as he got a little bit older? And his mom said, oh, I forgave them. And she said, that's what Christ has done for us is he's forgiven us. And so we forgive others. And he stood there sort of stunned as she went on to say, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. And when you look at this, you're right, you're, you see the simplicity and yet you see the power, you see the depth, you see the amount of effort this takes. And thank God it's not us having to come up with this sort of forgiveness. We receive it and then we give it away. It's costly. Jesus is going to go on and say, hey, this is costly for me. This is going to lead me to the cross. And Cephas, the little stone, says, it's not going to happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. 
And what does he mean there? Why would he evoke such a, like a harsh, poor, like Peter, who's like, it's a shining moment, like Satan, like what? But, but Jesus is probably here referring to the beginning of his ministry where he goes into the wilderness and is tempted. Three different chances for him to get out of the cross. Shortcuts. Ways around suffering. Ways around the cost. Here's an easy way. I'll give you all of this. All you have to do is bow to me. All you have to do is this little compromise here. And all this can be yours. And so Jesus knows, like this cross, I mean, he says, like, at one point to the Father, like, take, please, take it. There's got to be another way, right? This is everything in him sees the gravity of this and yet knows that the forgiveness, that this sort of forgiveness and grace, I mean, this is heavenly, something that surpasses the rationale of this world, and yet something that he uniquely is able to do for us. To cleanse our hearts of our sin. To provide grace that removes every blemish, every spot. None of us can do that ourselves. And, and Peter doesn't understand that. He's still looking for a like easier route. But he will understand by the end. And this idea as we talk about formation, as we talk about transformation, this is all we're talking about is, is growing into this revelation and living into it so that our hearts more and more resemble our king that we follow. Peter's going to later write, I think this may be my very favorite passage, which is why I quote it all the time. But in 1 Peter, he says, According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is what the Spirit teaches Peter. And it begins with this understanding of who Jesus is, and it's going to eventually form him into this sort of man. The, the radical is going to be softened in a beautiful way. The rock is going to have those rough edges smoothed to where... Peter, the zealot, will say, just be ready to give people an answer for the hope in you and to do it with gentleness and respect. Jesus' question, I believe, is timeless. It's for each one of us. It stands out there. It's As Beth read that this morning, that is the question, who do you say that I am? You're a prophet. You're an ethicist. <laughs> You're a really good guy, right? You're a great teacher, right? And, and you see Peter's going, no, king, like to you I bow the knee. 
And as we step into that kingdom, we begin to embody this kingdom. The kingdom is just where God's will is done. And let that be done here first. Where this is a place that humility and grace and compassion dwell. The peace of Christ. But that this is what emanates from our life as individuals and as a church. Love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we live in a time and place like no other. Jesus has said to the Pharisees before this, who are trying to bait Jesus with this test, like, prove who you are. And Jesus says, like, look, you can read the weather like you can't read the signs of the times. Caesarea, Philippi, there the religious leaders are trying to come up with some like way to hold on to their power and work within the powers that be. They've compromised. But this idea of reading the signs of the times, have we have, do we pay attention? One of the I, I, I love to re- read these people that are called futurists. Um, and it sounds kind of woo-woo, and it's not. They're, futurists are just like tech people trying to like predict out where things are going. There's this guy, Raymond Kurzweil, who's like come up with hundreds of patents, right? He created the scanner, but he also created like a synthesizer that emulates a grand piano. And he's like done all this speech to text. He's just this guy that like sees where it's leading and gets there before everybody else. And anyway, I don't want to talk about Ray, but if you want to read something scary about AI, you should go read his book. um, But but there's this other guy that I've recently been introduced to named Jemai Cascio. He's Italian futurist. And he's one to me that has so brilliantly described the time that we live in. And there's these acronyms that get floated around. And one of them, maybe you've heard, he's kind of replacing this one. But the, the, the kind of heartbeat of the world we live in used to be referred to as VUCA. Have you guys heard of this acronym? Some of you. It's like a military one that kind of, but, um, but VUCA stands for this. Volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And the military started realizing this is the world you live in. One that is volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous. If you don't know how to navigate a VUCA space, you're in trouble, right? So how do you understand this and how do you kind of learn how to dwell within it? And Jemai came up with one now that now I'm starting to hear all over the place, which is BANI. And it stands for this. Brittle, anxious, nonlinear, and incomprehensible. This is the world that we live in. Brittle, anxious, nonlinear, meaning like you cannot figure it out, right? You cannot follow cause and effect incomprehensible COVID who's got that one figured out I know some of you think you do but <laughs> anxious right like oh my gosh a hurricane like um sorry <laughs> I'm just I'm teasing but um right but you, you see the world that we live in right brittle and to go Jesus is going you're my team on the field. You are my ecclesia. You have the keys to bring freedom. But if we are brittle, 
and we are anxious, if we're like stuck in this reactivity and this anger and this worry, we're just bound up. And if the church continues to operate from this place, then we're doing just what the Pharisees are doing. Putting burdens upon people. Trying to desperately hold on to something that feels so scarce. Pitting ourselves against those that we are here to unbind. And what a picture of the posture that we should have as Jesus stands. I love this in Revelation. In 118, Jesus says this. And it's the statement that we hear over and over and over from Jesus. Fear not. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death in Hades. Such a great statement, right? But you go, what is the hope? The death does not prevail. The resurrection shows us a whole new level of revelation. That our souls endure and as Peter says are kept safe and even the hardships are preserved, are creating in us a, a glory more precious than gold. Jesus holds these keys and then gives them to us and says, go set people free. When I think of this idea of this, what is this dwelling? I, I immediately think of Henry now, and this got stuck last minute into the slide, so you don't have it on yours. I apologize. But now and talks about where we dwell. Do we dwell in the house of fear or do we dwell in the house of love? He says this, do not be afraid. Have no fear is the voice we most need to hear. The voice was heard by Zechariah when Gabriel, the angel of the Lord, appeared to him in the temple and told him that his wife Elizabeth would bear a son. This voice was heard by Mary when the same angel entered her house in Nazareth and announced that she would conceive, bear a child, and name him Jesus. The voice was also heard by the women who came to the tomb and saw that the stone was rolled away. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. The voice uttering these words sounds all through history as the voice of God's messengers, be they angels or saints. It is the voice that announces a whole new way of being, a being in the house of love, the house of the Lord. The house of love is not simply a place in the afterlife, a place in heaven beyond this world. Jesus offers us this house right in the midst of our anxious world. Isn't this where you would like to dwell? And it's the invitation. Jesus knocks on that door. If you've never received those keys, he's like, I'm knocking on the heart. Invite me in. What comes with that is grace and forgiveness and love and compassion and his spirit. And you see Peter doing that. You're the Christ. Submitting our hearts to his, receiving that grace, but then letting that grace flow through us towards others. To a brittle world, we bring peace and reconciliation. To an anxious world, we bring hope and trust. 
to the non-linear thinking of the day, we bring meaning and purpose. And to the incomprehensible, we bring the light of truth, the mystery of God, and the wonder and beauty of his love. Some questions for you, if you would like, if you choose to accept it. Um, Question one, are there thoughts or actions in your life that you need to be set free from? Have you brought them to God? Sometimes it's as simple as that, that our worries remain worries because we clutch to them alone instead of bringing them to Christ. Have you brought them to God? Have you confessed to them? Are there ways that we can support you in remaining free? That's part of what we do as a church. Come alongside, link arms, walk with each other. Number two, are you withholding the keys of forgiveness and reconciliation from another? I might have one, two, not more than three. Um, There's the task on my plate that God might move further into that place of releasing the offense. Ask for his help to extend grace. This is part of the work that we do. Number three, is your life a contrast to the signs of the times? How often are you affected by fear and anxiety, anger or resentment? How might you draw nearer to God that his patience and peace would be experienced within your own heart? Because the Spirit is at work, revealing to Peter, revealing to us, comforting, comforting us in our affliction, restoring us and sending us.